Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Moppin Engineering today's program. Tuesdays, Bible Study Fellowship Day. It's always a good day when it's a Tuesday. Today we're going to have a conversation with Andrew Farley. He is the author of The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? The answer is yes, but we'll give him an opportunity to explain uh, for those who may doubt or need to be reminded of how good the gospel really is. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also take a look at an article on American dystopia. Are we in a state of confusion where we can't get things right in this country? We'll take a look at that also in the second hour of today's program. But first, to look at some of the day's news. Well, federal court, a federal court dismissed challenges to Texas abortion laws, private enforcement provision. Uh, They dismissed all challenges to a provision in that law, the um, fetal heartbeat abortion ban. This is what the Texas Supreme Court said. Having received the ruling of the Texas Supreme Court that named officials, defendants may not enforce the provisions of the Texas Heartbeat Act, this uh, court remands the case with instructions to dismiss all challenges to the private enforcement provisions of the statute and to consider whether plaintiffs have standing to challenge. That was the ruling of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, the ban, also known as Senate Bill 8, was originally signed into law in May. Well, the law outlaws abortions once medical professionals can detect a fetal heartbeat, usually around six weeks into a pregnancy, and before many women know that they're pregnant. The law allows citizens to sue abortion providers or anyone suspected of helping a woman obtain an abortion. So a federal court dismissed challenges to the Texas abortion law's private enforcement provision. And in 2008, when Coach Joseph Kennedy knelt in silent prayer at the 50-yard line of the Bremerton High School football field after a game, he likely never anticipated his subsequent firing would take him all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's been a pretty long journey, to say the least. Well, First Liberty Institute, a public interest law firm that handles religious liberty cases, filed a lawsuit on his behalf against Bremerton School District in 2016. Today's 2022 for violating his First Amendment rights to free speech and religious expression when he fired when he was fired. Well, First Liberty asked the court to allow Kennedy to continue coaching while litigation was pending. But the district court followed by the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, denied that request. So he has not been coaching since his firing in 2016. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court also denied that request in 2019 so that the lower courts could definitively determine the reason for his termination. But four justices, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh wrote, The Ninth Circuit's understanding of the free speech rights of public school teachers is troubling and may justify review in the future. Well, fast forward to the future, which is now. 
On remand, the lower court found the school district ultimately agreed that Kennedy lost his job, excuse me, solely because of his religious expression. The Ninth Circuit Court affirmed that ruling, concluding that virtually all speech by public school employees, including Kennedy, should be considered government speech, which is not entitled to First Amendment protection. Not satisfied with this rather radical conclusion, the court went further and held that even if Kennedy's prayer was private expression protected by the free speech and free exercise clauses, the Establishment Clause required its suppression. Well, the Supreme Court granted review of Kennedy's case in January of this year. On Monday, it heard oral arguments during which counsel for Kennedy, former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, asked the justices to reverse the Ninth Circuit Court's ruling. So this was and is very significant, not just for Coach Kennedy, but for religious expression and the Establishment Clause interpretation as well. Well, the question facing the justices are these. When a public school employee says a brief, quiet prayer by himself while at school and visible to students, is he engaged in government speech that lacks any First Amendment protection? And if not, assuming that kind of religious expression is private and protected by the First Amendment, does the Constitution's Establishment Clause require the public schools to prohibit it anyway? Well, uh, Clement, who again is representing uh, Coach Kennedy... His argument relied heavily on the trial court's findings that religious expression was the only reason given by the school district for his firing. In fact, in multiple letters that were exchanged prior to his lawsuit, the school district mentioned endorsement of religion eight times but said nothing about other concerns that might have prompted his termination. Well, uh, uh, Clement, representing Coach Kennedy, stressed that previous Supreme Court cases make clear that a school does not endorse private religious speech if it fails to censor it. But the Ninth Circuit Court seemed to have forgotten that principle. Well, um, Justice Thomas asked whether Kennedy was pursuing free exercise and free speech claims separately or together. And uh, his attorney noted that Kennedy's case was a hybrid type case in which the right to free speech and free exercise reinforce each other. Justice um, or or Coach Kennedy was engaged in private symbolic speech, but that speech was of a religious nature. Well, later in the argument, Justice Amy Coney Barrett returned to this theme when she asked, this is as just Thomas, um, Justice Thomas asked uh, you at the beginning, both a free exercise and free speech claim. Who is he communicating to God? Like, where is the speech? Well, the attorney responded, I think he is communicating to God and at Uh, And that, as a result, his speech was protected by the first exercise clause. Well, the justices also grappled with the free speech argument, asking whether the government could censor Kennedy's speech because it transpired within the scope of official duties. And if not, whether there was an establishment of religion problem because students felt coerced into participation. Now, I talked a little bit about that yesterday about that aspect of the conversation. And many observers suggest that uh, Justice Kennedy, or I should say Coach Kennedy, uh, was favorably uh, treated in the uh, in the hearing yesterday. We'll find out in the summer or perhaps <clears throat> in the fall whether or not that is the case. But this is a significant um, case, not just for um, Coach Kennedy, but for others who want to exercise their First Amendment freedom and there, the establishment clause being applied to the free exercise of religion in the public square. We'll continue to follow this case. 
Whereas at this point, the only uh, thing to follow is the final decision that the Supreme Court will announce at some point in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up second hour, the grace message, is the gospel really this good? Andrew Farley will be my guest. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland today said there, uh, there will not be interference of any political or improper kind in the Justice Department's investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings. Senator Bill Haggerty questioned the Attorney General about the investigation into President Biden's son during a Senate Appropriations Committee hearing, asking whether Garland himself had been briefed on the investigation. Well, he replied that the probe is being led by David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Wilmington, Delaware, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump. I'm aware of that, but he reports to you, Haggerty said. He is supervising the investigation, and I'm not at liberty to talk about internal Justice Department deliberations, but he is in charge of that investigation, the attorney general replied. There will be no interference of any political or improper kind. Well, the Wall Street Journal reported last month that a federal tax probe into the younger Biden, which first began as early as 2018, is gaining momentum with prosecutors reportedly investigating his sources of foreign income. Investigators have looked into whether Hunter Biden and his associated uh, associated um, associates rather violated money laundering tax and foreign lobbying laws. Uh, However, he has not been charged with any crimes and has denied any wrongdoing. If the uh, Republicans prevail in the midterm elections, we're going to see this a major issue uh, covered by committee hearings uh, with no doubt. During the hearings on Tuesday, Haggerty asked the attorney general if he thought it would be appropriate if President Biden ever called him into the Oval Office to say that his son did not break the law. Absolutely not, Garland said, and the president had not done that. The president is committed not to interfere, not only in that investigation, but any other kind of investigation. Well, uh, Haggerty um, went on to ask how the American people can be confident that Biden, the administration, is conducting a serious investigation into his own son. And the attorney general replied, because we have put the investigation into the hands of a Trump appointee from the previous administration. And because you have me as the attorney general who is committed to the independence of the Justice Department from any influence from the White House in criminal matters, he went on to say. Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 809 points or 2.4 percent today as investors sold stock with the concerns of a coming recession. The Dow faced a significant decline since trading opening this um, open this morning by the market's close. It had reached one of the lowest closing values in the past year. Similar declines were observed on other market indices, uh, including the S&P 500, which fell 2.8 percent and the Nasdaq Composite. Uh, which lost 4% of its value. Most experts ascribe the loss to stock by um, big technology companies whose increases in value have come to represent a sizable portion of the market indices. Alphabet, Apple, uh, Microsoft, and Twitter all declined by several points. Each of these companies was due to present earnings reports at the close of trading, which investors did not expect to bode well. Vice President Kamala Harris tested positive for COVID-19 today. Her press secretary, Kristen Allen, said in a Tuesday statement that the vice president was exhibiting no symptoms. 
The vice president is 57, is the highest level Biden administration official to test positive for the virus since the White House press secretary Jen Psaki in March. The vice president's office said that um, uh, Vice President Harris has not participated in any meetings at the White House on Tuesday, and she had not seen President Biden since the 18th of uh, April. Uh, cameras did spot Harris arriving at the White House on Tuesday morning wearing a mask. She was previously scheduled to join the president's daily briefing on Tuesday. I'm grateful to be both vaccinated and boosted, the vice president tweeted. She spoke with the president by phone, according to the White House. Also, Senator Ron Wyden, one of Oregon's two federal senators, uh, has tested positive for COVID-19, his office announced this morning. Uh, Wyden's case was detected as part of routine testing, according to his office. He's fully vaccinated and experiencing minor symptoms. Uh, the senator is in Washington at the moment and will uh, work from his residence there while in quarantine. Washington, D.C. has seen a wave of covid cases among lawmakers in recent weeks, including members of Oregon's congressional de- delegation. Representatives Earl Blumenauer and Pete DeFazio uh, both tested positive uh, on the 8th of April. Vice President Kamala Harris, as uh, mentioned, also tested positive on Tuesday. Senator Wyden and both congressmen were present last week to welcome President Joe Biden uh, to Portland. Although the day's events mostly took place outdoors or inside airplane hangars with the main uh, doors uh, open near Portland International Airport. Oregon's own COVID case numbers have been trending upward for the, uh, the past several weeks, mirroring a national trend. The state's seven-day average for daily new cases stood at 765 on Monday, more than triple where it was at the post-Omicron uh, low point about a month ago, although still less than a tenth of where it was at the peak of the Omicron wave in January. Oregon's COVID hospitalizations also began to creep upward last week after holding steady at around 100 patients during the prior two weeks. The total as of Monday, 144 hospitalized COVID patients statewide. Well, Amazon founder and former CEO Jeff Bezos suggested China may have gained leverage over what happened on Twitter now that Tesla CEO Elon Musk has secured a $44 billion deal. Now, the back and forth between the two, Bezos and Musk, will continue. Americans in Washington, D.C. are split over whether Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter will help or hinder free speech. In a case of social justice silence, companies are loudly uh, that loudly supported BLM or organizations that support overhauling policing have nothing to say when confronted with skyrocketing black murders. And working behind the scenes, a secretive group backed by billionaire George Soros is helping President Biden's administration shape policy. Sean Hannity slammed big tech for becoming a big left echo chamber and suggested that Elon Musk will make Twitter a place for free speech. There are echo chambers of all kinds out there these days. Sean Hannity slammed big tech for becoming um, just such an echo chamber. Laura Ingram suggested the left is using big business to censor free speech, but she's hopeful this will change now that Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. We'll see. Covering half the story, ABC, CBS and NBC pushed a since debunked claim that Border Patrol agents whipped Haitian migrants, but didn't mention that it was discredited. Ex-CBS reporter Kate Smith, who quit her job so she could speak openly on uh, abortion rights, announced she has joined Planned Parenthood on a full time basis. No big surprise there.
An MSNBC segment went off the rails on Saturday during a debate over voter suppression as left-wing legal analyst um, Ellie Meistall and Republican strategist Rufus Montgomery clashed in a fiery confrontation. The breakdown happened as the two appeared together on the cross-connection and uh, Meistall claimed it was because of Republicans on the Supreme Court that voting rights of black Americans were being hindered. And Montgomery blasted Meistall for still crying about voter suppression, despite Democrats controlling both houses of Congress and the White House. Some things will never be agreed upon. A mask mandate in a fallout. Um, New York Times uh, guest essay suggested a judge's decision to block the mask mandate may undermine the federal government's authority. And Governor Greg Abbott points out that with Title 42 ending in May, an estimated 18,000 uh, migrants per day may flood the, uh, the border into our communities already overburdened with migrants. And Jim Breslow says, for the first time in 30 years, I feel uneasy driving around L.A. in a nice car or wearing a nice watch. Senator Kevin Kramer says that even with the skyrocketing inflation, there are reports the Biden administration and Democrats want to revive their tax and spending spree. He calls it reckless. Rejecting the pregnant man emoji outrage, the American Family Association is pushing back against what it's calling corporate cultural indoctrination. Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion dollars. Twitter Inc. on Monday accepted the uh, bid to take over the company, which would give the world's richest man control over the social media network, where he is also among its most influential users. The $44 billion deal marks the close of a dramatic courtship and a change of heart at Twitter, where many executives and board members initially opposed Mr. Musk's uh, takeover approach. The two sides worked through the night to hash out a deal in which Mr. Musk plans to take Twitter private. Mr. Musk will uh, bring his commitment to a more hands-off approach on a free speech company that has struggled to reconcile freewheeling conversation with content that appeals to advertisers. Uh, He says, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that's what free speech is all about. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines and in the second hour a conversation with andrew farley the grace message you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq we're back you're listening to the georgine rice show Well, a federal judge has temporarily barred the Biden administration from lifting Title 42. The Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, a huge victory for border security. A National Review reports a federal judge in Louisiana has blocked the administration from ending the expulsion of immigrants under Title 42 less than a month before the pandemic era public health measure was set to end. Drawn from the Public Health Act of 1944, the measure allows the U.S. to summarily expel immigrants who are deemed to pose a risk to public health. During the coronavirus pandemic, it was used by the Trump and Biden administrations to remove tens of thousands outside the normal deportation process. The Daily Wire weighs in. Schmidt joined 20 other state attorneys general last week in a challenge to the administration after it announced plans to scrap Title 42 on May 23rd. A Republican signed a letter to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas questioning his ability to do his job due to the border crisis. 
More than 50 House Republicans sent the letter to the Department of Homeland Security Secretary on Monday, questioning his leadership over the growing border crisis along the nation's southern border. The letter was led by Border Security Caucus co-chair Brian Babin, Republican from Texas, and Republican Study Committee Chair Jim Banks from Indiana. Letter to Secretary Mayorkas. Your actions have willingly endangered American citizens, undermined the rule of law and our nation's sovereignty. Your failure to secure the border and enforce the laws passed by Congress raise grave questions about your suitability for office. End quote. The Supreme Court rather heard the case of a high school football coach who was fired for praying after games. The outcome is expected to be announced sometime this summer, if not early fall. Senator Manchin's approval rating has spiked since President Biden took office. Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat who has an outsized influence over President Biden's agenda, has dramatically impressed voters back home. The centrist lawmakers approval ratings jumped from 40 percent to 57 percent in West Virginia over the past year. The biggest increase of any senator. The double digit boost largely stems from West Virginia Republicans. At the beginning of Biden's term, only 35 percent of GOP voters in the red state approved of Manchin. Now that figure is nearly doubled with 69 percent of Republicans in support of his job performance. Morning Consult reports that while Manchin has made up ground on the right, he's angered West Virginia Democrats, 54 percent of whom now disapprove of him, up from 32 percent around this time last year. However, he's also made large gains with independence over that time frame and an approval rating rising from 31 percent to 50 percent. According to a new poll, two thirds of San Francisco voters plan to recall the D.A. Chesa Bowden in June. Over two-thirds, or 68% of likely primary voters, say that they will vote yes to recall the San Francisco um, DA. 50% and 71% of voters over 50 say that they support the recall today. Uh, Fatal and non-fatal shooting incidents jumped 33% from 2020 to last year in San Francisco Chronicle reported in January. Homicides rose from 48 to 56 in 2022. Property crime up 10.4% from this time last year. NBC, uh, uh, Bay Area's investigative streaming service, a series rather, says Saving San Francisco found burglaries are the highest they have ever been in recent history and smash and grab car break ins were up 170% last year. San Francisco Mayor uh, London Breed addressed the rise in crime with NBC Bay Area's senior investigative reporter in Saving San Francisco, saying, I think that there's been too much focus on the um, perpetrators of some of the violent crimes, and we need to start concentrating more on supporting the victims of this city than we are supporting in some cases. Uh, sadly, the criminals, Breed said on the Saving San Francisco series. For now, businesses in the city are doing what they feel they need to do to protect themselves. The recall vote will happen on the 7th of June later this year. California is preparing to be a haven for out-of-state abortions. In truth, it will be uh, no haven at all. From the story at uh, Cal Matters, California abortion clinics are building new facilities closer to transit hubs and training more staff. A package of a dozen abortion rights bills moving through the legislature could expand the number of providers, provide financial assistance to women traveling to California to terminate their pregnancies or end the lives of their children in utero and legally protect the doctors who treat them. 
Town Hall reports that in November, Governor Gavin Newsom said he was looking to boost the state's abortion infrastructure to accommodate more out-of-state patients. The governor and other pro-abortion lawmakers formed a coalition called the California Future of Abortion Council, where it outlined several policies to implement for people to terminate their pregnancies. This included increased public spending toward abortion services and patients traveling from out of state to obtain one. The U.S. would like to see Russia's sphere of influence diminished. The Wall Street Journal reports the Biden administration aims in the or their aim rather in the Ukraine war is to see Russia's military capabilities degraded and Ukraine strengthened to prevent Moscow from attempting to conquer territory by force in the future. U.S. officials said on Monday, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said after he and the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken became the highest level U.S. officials to visit the Ukrainian capital of Kiev since Russia invaded Ukraine. The Washington Post reports that Blinken and Austin said their visit to the Ukrainian capital, which Russia Russian forces were unable to capture despite an attempt in the initial weeks of the war, highlighted the failure of Putin's aim in Ukraine. Arizona Governor Ducey signed a bill ensuring clergy may visit patients in long-term care facilities. Alliance Defending Freedom reports the following quote may be attributed to the organization's legal counsel, Greg Schaffen, regarding Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signing on Monday, House Bill 2449, a bill that ensures that residents of long-term care facilities are able to receive visits from clergy during a state of emergency, an extension of protections passed last year for patients in hospitals. The religious freedom of Arizonans should be protected, especially during a public crisis. Over the past two years, too many people were denied visits from clergy, even in end-of-life situations. House Bill 2449 ensures that this does not happen in long-term care facilities like nursing homes by allowing residents to receive visits from clergy. Residents in vulnerable situations deserve to have their religious freedom protected. The right to exercise religion should not be denied or violated merely because they are in a facility receiving care. Well, the Biden immigration policies aren't winning in court. On Monday, a Louisiana federal court temporarily blocked the administration's decision to end Title 42. And Schumer and Pelosi are funneling millions in anonymous cash into midterm coffers. There's no darker money in politics than that which fills the election coffers of Democrats, which is ironic given the fact that those most often lamenting money in politics happen to be Democrats. As they face an uphill battle to maintain control of Congress, we learn that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have ties to nonprofit PACs that have poured in some $20 million from hidden donors into the campaigns of Democrat candidates. When challenged about the lack of transparency, the nonprofit Majority Forward blamed Republicans. Corporate Republicans are the only ones standing in the way of increasing transparency and making progress on campaign finance reform. According to Fox News, Majority Forward's midterm funding follows the $60 million the group had injected into the 2020 elections to help Democrats regain the Senate majority. It has now pushed $75 million into elections over the two cycles, a drastic increase over the $5.5 million it had injected for 2016 and 2018 elections combined. The fact of the matter is that the uh, dark money contributions have significantly outpaced those of Republicans. The question remains, who's behind all of this cash? 
yet an unanswered question. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the um, headlines of the day. And we'll also have a conversation in the second hour with the author of The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? The answer is yes, and we'll explain why. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Andrew Farley. The grace message, is the gospel really this good? We'll also uh, take a look at an article on American dystopia. Is that where we are? Where nothing works. Well, BLM's corporate donors remain pretty mum about the spike in black murders in the wake of George Floyd's death and the months of rioting and protests that followed. Several big corporations donated millions of dollars in support of BLM and its social justice causes, such as the defund the police. Sadly, but predictably, emotions trumped sober reasoning as the facts on the ground didn't support the narrative of systematic racism being promulgated uh, in every case, but none of that mattered because corporate America was eager to virtue signal. Well, in um, uh, one example, the murder rate among black Americans has jumped 32 percent since 2019 and the defund police campaign. The Manhattan Institute's Heather McDonald argues that the spike wasn't at all related to covid because the rise in murders among blacks began months after lockdowns and only after riots. Meanwhile, those uh, corporations that were so vocal in their support of the movement uh, have gone suddenly quiet when it comes to the deadly violence now plaguing the uh, community, violence that is predominantly uh, black-on-black crime. Uh, apparently, black lives only matter when a police officer is involved, when it should matter all the time. Elon Musk acquires Twitter in a $44 million deal. The body of the missing Texas National Guard soldier has been found. And Homeland Security has been undercounting migrant deaths at the southern border for years, according to a report by Congress's chief watchdog agency. The revelation is something immigrant rights activists have long asserted. The Government Accountability Office confirmed it, finding that in eastern Arizona, a particularly deadly part of the border, The government's count was off by nearly 50 percent from independent tallies. Customs and Border Protection, which oversees the Border Patrol, keeps a tally of migrants, its personnel find, but it struggles to account for cases where some other entity finds the remains, according to investigators. And explosions rocked Moldova after Russia suggested that it would be next, the next target in Europe. Well, Germany plans to authorize a tank shipment to Ukraine, bending to international pressure. And the U.S. is sending diplomats back to Ukraine, looking to reopen the U.S. embassy as early as next week. The Supreme Court signals a victory for the praying football coach, although a decision has yet to be uh, handed down. And Ron DeSantis signed a law creating a police unit to deal with election crimes. Well, on this day in history, 1607, English colonists go ashore at present-day Cape Henry, Virginia, on an expedition to establish the first permanent English settlement in the Western Hemisphere. 1865, John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln, is surrounded by federal troops near Port Royal, Virginia, and is killed. 1933, Nazi Germany's infamous secret police, the Gestapo, is established. And in 1968, the United States detonates a 1.3 megaton nuclear device called Boxcar beneath the Nevada desert. 1986, an explosion and fire at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine 
caused radioactive fallout to begin spewing into the atmosphere. Dozens of people were killed in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, and the long-term death toll from radiation poisoning is believed to have been in the thousands. 1994, voting begins in South Africa's first all-race elections, resulting in victory for the African National Congress and the inauguration of Nelson Mandela as president. 2006, Whitney Sarek and Laura Van Rijn, two students at Indiana's Taylor University, are involved in a van truck collision that kills five people and a tragic mix-up that takes five weeks to resolve. A seriously injured and comatose Sarek is mistakenly identified as Van Rijn, who had actually died in the crash and was buried as Sarek by Sarek's family. What a tragedy that was. 2009, the United States declares public health emergency as more possible cases of swine flu surface from Canada and New Zealand. Officials in New Me- in Mexico City rather close everything from concerts to sports matches to churches in an effort to stem the spread of that virus. And 2018, Mike Pompeo was confirmed as Secretary of State by the U.S. Senate. Well, in March of 2020, then-President Donald Trump declared a temporary pause on federal student loan repayments. Last week, President Biden announced the sixth extension of that pause, which now will stretch to September 1st of this year. The original justification for the moratorium on student loan payments has long since evaporated. With COVID-19 shutdowns, it was assumed that college graduates would be out of work on a massive scale. That's certainly not the case today. And while the rationale for the moratorium no longer exists, the cost to taxpayers keeps mounting. And the unlikely event that the administration actually pulls the plug on the August 31st, for 31st rather, the pause will have lasted 28 months deferring over $218 billion in payments and costing taxpayers more than $5 billion a month in lost interest. So there is a cost that will be paid by someone, if not those who took out the student loans. Well, as economic policy goes, the moratorium is not only expensive, it's patently unfair. On average, it forces low-income taxpayers to subsidize those with higher incomes. The latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that college graduates continue to earn considerably more than their less educated counterparts, 45.2% more than the average worker, 57.6% more than those who only uh, with only some college education or an associate's degree, and 125.3% more than those who never finished high school. Well, the greatest economic hardship facing college graduates and all Americans today is not the threat of student loan repayment, but inflation, which is um, whittling away at everyone's earnings. Well, this hidden tax has confiscated nearly 8% of Americans' purchasing power in just the last year. Well, since Mr. Biden took office, the real value of the average person's weekly earnings has fallen 4.5%, and that is a staggering decline in little more than a year. Unfortunately, the moratorium on student loan payments is contributing to inflationary pressures. Well, the president's decision to extend that pause once again on federal student loan payments is only worsening the current inflation crisis and his consideration of canceling the debt altogether could have a disastrous impact on the economy, according to one expert warning. Well, earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Education announced an extension of that pause on student loan repayment, interest and collections through the 31st. And Biden said in a statement, the U.S. is still recovering from the years long coronavirus pandemic, necessitating further leniency on low payment. 
Well, not so much. Well, the move comes as progressive Democrats call for a permanent cancellation of all student loan payment. Representative Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington, wrote over the weekend that student debt cancellation is racial justice, gender justice and economic justice. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said during a press briefing earlier this month that the administration has not ruled out canceling student loan debt on a wider scale via execution or executive action. Well, that's me applied to executive action. Well, the president has previously said he supports canceling up to 10,000, but he argued it should be done through congressional action. Well, E.J. Antony, a research fellow in regional economics at the Heritage Foundation, uh, said that the pause on repayment is contributing to the current inflation crisis, which rose a crippling 8.5% last month. This latest blunder by the administration, further extending the moratorium, is adding to price increases in at uh, at least three ways. First, forestalling the repayment of debt adds fuel to the inflation fire by putting upward pressure on the money supply and therefore inflation. Second, after repeatedly promising not to extend the moratorium, this latest extension is just another broken promise by the administration. The unpredictable and irrational behavior of the executive branch has created uncertainty for markets, which reduces investment and consequently output, and that puts upward pressure on prices. Third, delaying student loan repayments also removes an incentive for many people to re-enter the workforce, further contributing to labor costs and higher prices across the economy. Well, he argued that an outright cancellation of the debt would only benefit higher income earners and burden lower and middle class taxpayers. Concerning the potential cancellation of student debt, we would do well to remember that that is a euphemism for burdening the taxpayer with those loans, he said. It would unfairly yoke $2 trillion around the necks of low- and mid-income Americans at the benefit of those with higher-than-average incomes. Additionally, it would only exacerbate the inflationary pressures described before. Well, the new extension applies to more than 43 million Americans who owe a a combined $1.6 trillion in student debt held by the federal government, according to the latest data from the Education Department. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. In the second hour, Andrew Farley and a conversation on the grace message. Stay with us. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Andrew Farley. The grace message, is the gospel really this good? Well, for those of us who who know the gospel, we know the answer is yes, but he'll explain when he joins me in the next segment. Uh, continuing to look through some of the uh, some of the news, the uh, mainstream media isn't happy with the prospect of free speech coming to Twitter and what form it might take on Monday night CBS and NBC evening news programs. They essentially melted down over Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. He hasn't actually done anything yet, but they're just anticipating. I uh, suppose the loss of power or influence. CBS Evening News said Musk's commitment to making the social media platform a safe haven for spe- free speech will allow misinformation and disinformation to run rampant. Uh, anchor uh, Nora O'Donnell even said that Musk used the platform to bully critics and reporters. Of course, he doesn't actually have the platform yet. NBC Nightly News claimed the platform will now be unsafe for women and minorities. 
um, correspondent Joe Ling Kent hyped um, critics who claim that their uh, very safety was in jeopardy with Musk taking over the social media giant. Their safety uh, can't continue. This is a very controversial, polarizing owner of Twitter. A lot of the individuals and critics uh, that we've uh, been speaking to in recent weeks say they're really concerned about the safety and violence and threats, especially against women and people of color on Twitter. Several people I've spoken to today already say uh, say no, they don't trust safety and the, you know, goodness of Twitter if Elon Musk is the owner. So this is just in anticipation of his uh, oversight of Twitter. We'll see what actually happens, but the panic has set in. Meanwhile, Google has launched an inclusive language function designed to avoid the use of politically incorrect words. You know, words like men and women these days can be considered politically incorrect. And Google has uh, launched an inclusive language function to help you avoid saying what you actually mean. User typing landlord, um, that's what they call it, landlord will see a warning that uh, it may not be inclusive to all readers with a suggestion that they should try property owner or proprietor instead. Uh, the word humankind is a suggested alternative to what the online giant apparently sees as the controversial term mankind. Uh, gender specific terms such as policeman or housewife should also be replaced by police officers and stay at home spouse. According to the new Google document style program, it's now being rolled out uh, to what the firm calls enterprise level users. Now, many computer document systems used methods to correct spelling and grammar, but this is more the thought police. Nudging users toward woke language is being seen by critics as a step too far. Tests on the system have also thrown up major flaws. A uh, transcribed interview with ex-Klu Klux Klan leader David Duke, in which he uses offensive racial slurs and talks about hunting black people, prompted no warnings at all. So I'm not really clear on how they're applying this, but it suggested President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address address rather should say for all humankind instead of for all mankind, because that's offensive. David Duke. Using racial slurs and talking about hunting black people. By the way, I'm a black people. Um, that was okay, but President John F. Kennedy's um, for all humankind was considered beyond the pale. Uh, Silky Carlo of campaign group Big Brother Watch told the Sunday Telegraph that Google's new word warnings aren't as assistive. They're deeply intrusive. This language policing is profoundly clumsy, creepy, and wrong, often reinforcing bias. Well, San Bowman of online magazine Works in Progress said it feels pretty hectoring and adds an unwanted political cultural slant to what I'd rather was a neutral product as a user. The Google spokesman said our technology is always uh, improving. Well, you might question that always improving changing might be a better word and we don't yet have a solution to identifying and mitigating all unwanted word associations and biases so they um, consider themselves responsible for trying to change how you speak on their platform well reverend franklin graham he praised florida lawmakers for removing the special tax status for the walt disney corporation 
because of the embrace of and promotion of the LGBTQ agenda and described the company as a moral failure with corporate leaders whose morals are in the gutter. That's a quote. After Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights and Education Bill into law in March, which prohibits teaching uh, materials to children K through uh, third grade, the Walt Disney Corporation and activists within it denounced the legislation. In response, Florida parents criticized the company and called on lawmakers to remove its special tax status, which the uh, legislature did. They did so, and the governor signed the legislation on the 22nd of this month. Well, commenting on the issue, Franklin Graham posted on Facebook, um, LGBTQ activists are using corporations to force their agenda on the public and companies may want to take another look at what they are allowing to happen. Disney has gone too far, end quote. Well, he went on to say the people of Florida have revolted and it's going to cost Disney big time. Disney had a special tax status in the state, which they benefited from in a huge way. But because they came out against the parents of Florida, the governors and the the governor singular and legislators, plural, have revoked that status. What has happened at Disney is moral failure. Walt Disney had a vision of, for wholesome family entertainment. He was committed to the family, the morals of the corporate leadership of Disney today are in the gutter and they want to redefine family counter to God's original design and flaunt sin, end quote. Well, Graham continued, I'm in Orlando right now with uh, our Samaritan's Purse Operation Heal, our Patriots military veterans couples, and it is a uh, it is absolutely beautiful. I can uh, I can uh, tell you there's a ton of fun things for families to do here other than supporting Disney. So even Franklin Graham weighing in on that controversy. And the Supreme Court on Tuesday uh, heard a challenge to the president's um, Biden versus Texas. The administration's repeal of the Trump Migration Protection Protocols, a.k.a. remain in Mexico. But the stakes go beyond the border and strike at the heart of the Constitution's separation of powers. This was heard by the justices earlier today. President Biden, on his first day in office, directed his Department of Homeland Security to review whether to terminate or modify remain in Mexico. DHS ended the policy last June. The two questions before the high court are whether DHS followed proper administrative procedure and whether the law lets uh, lets it end that policy. The answers are no and no. Well, the Trump administration implemented Remain in Mexico in early 2019 to deal with a surge of migrants claiming asylum. Since DHS uh, total detention capacity is 34,618, the government has been releasing migrants apprehended at the border into the United States. Well, Remain in Mexico requires rather non-Mexican migrants to wait in Mexico until their asylum claims are heard. Unnoted by critics is that Congress's establishment uh, established the legal basis for this policy as part of the 1996 bipartisan immigration reform. Joe Biden voted for it. So the Supreme Court heard arguments earlier today as to whether or not the administration has the authority to end the policy uh, and uh, uh, whether the law lets uh, uh, allows for that uh, contingency. Again, two questions the the Supreme Court heard earlier today. Decisions on that are expected uh, sometime early summer. Well, coming up, we're going to have uh, we're going to hear from Andrew Farley, author of The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? The book is published by Salem Books. He'll be with us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest has written a book you need to read. It's called The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? Well, the ministry that's dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity, Pastor Andrew Farley. He believes there's no greater message needed today than the message of God's grace. Now, in the book titled The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? from Salem Books, he shares how grace turns everything upside down. Now, when you think about grace, do you think about it having an impact on every area of your life? Well, he says that lots of people are getting a lightweight understanding of God's grace, and it's only for them forgiveness when they fail and heaven when they die. They don't see the empowerment of God's grace. So we're going to talk about the grace message uh, with Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a best-selling author of nine books. He serves as president of the Grace Message, a nonprofit Christian media ministry dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity. He hosts the Grace Message with Dr. Andrew Farley every weeknight and Sunday afternoon on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and on stations across North America. He's also the lead pastor of the Grace Church and has been recognized with several awards for his excellence in teaching. He lives in Dallas with his uh, family, wife and son, and we're just delighted to have him here with us today to talk about this extraordinary book. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, this is such an important subject, and you would think within the Christian church, this would be like the thing everybody understands, clings to, and recognizes as, uh, you know, the golden ticket, if you will. That's a a poor way of putting it, but I think you get the idea. Why is it that we have to be taught and retaught to understand and embrace and fully enjoy the, the benefits, the lavish grace that God has for his children? Yeah, well, we grow up uh, going to school, we work hard, and they give us good grades, and we go to the workplace and uh, give it our best effort, and they give us a promotion. So we're very much accustomed to an achieving system, and then we come to believe in Christ, and we now are engaged in a receiving system. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what we experience on planet Earth, and so Grace turns everything upside down. It's it's not about our trying. It, it's really about our trusting, and it's not about what we're doing for God. It's really about what He did for us. So it's counterintuitive. It's an assault on the ego at times, mm. and we just have to be receivers of God's grace. You begin with an exploration of the Old Testament law, which is perhaps where some of our confusion comes from, and you contrast that with the New Covenant. Can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of the two different systems and you know the fact that we're under the New Covenant, the benefit we enjoy because of what Christ has done? Yeah, I don't think we realize how stringent and even impossible the law really was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 613 commands uh, staring us in the face, everything from dietary laws to uh, ceremonial washings and sacrificial regulations. And, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament law as 10 rules written on stone, uh, but it was much larger than that. And for a reason, I mean, Jesus comes along and basically shows that it's impossible. Hey, you think you're doing good avoiding adultery. I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same thing. And you think you're doing great just avoiding murder. Well, I tell you, if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murder. Um, He's raising the bar and showing the impossibility of true law keeping so that they would realize their need for God's grace. And, you know, God's grace is the polar opposite. It's not us trying our best to get close to God and stay close. It's 
In fact, uh, the idea that Jesus made us close through the death, burial, and resurrection, everything is free to the believer. Uh, We're forgiven for free. We're made righteous for free. We're brought near to God for free at no cost to us because it costs Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. And then you have the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that heap tradition and all sorts of rules that were never intended uh, on top of the law, making it even more impossible. But somehow believing that if we just add more to it, if we just try to clarify it in our own strength, then somehow we're going to measure up to what Jesus himself declared is an impossible standard. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was they were they were adding things that were achievable for them personally, and then they were creating loopholes and they were creating exceptions and addendums and that sort of thing to try to make it palatable and doable. And, you know, the New Testament reveals if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all of it. Uh, Galatians says you're under a curse if you're under the law because Cursed is everyone who does not obey everything. So the law is not multiple choice. Uh, It's not choose your own adventure. Uh, It's not like a buffet line at your favorite restaurant. The law is an all or nothing proposition. And that's why we need God's grace instead. Now, let's begin by defining grace. How is it different from mercy or even forgiveness? Well, I mean, mercy is when you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to show you mercy. Uh, But if he pulls out a thousand dollar bill and hands it to you, that's grace. I mean, grace is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's uh, it's just excessive and, and beyond measure. It's undeserved favor. And that's that's the difference between grace and mercy. But I think the average Christian, we're just looking at grace as, well, forgiveness and heaven. You know, God's a banker that canceled my debt, and he's a travel agent that has booked me for heaven. But God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace also means that God is a heart surgeon. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a new heart, filled us with new desires, gave us his spirit. So God's grace is equipping. And Anybody that throws stones at God's grace or wants to lessen God's grace is going to lessen their victory over sin. Now, why? what is the new covenant and why is that so important? We've talked a little bit about the law and how impossible it is to live up to the standards there. And, you know, I think a lot of people question, well, why were they put in place? We know that Jesus explained to expose the fact that we we can't achieve, you know, God is so holy, his standards are so high, we cannot reach that standard. Well, let's talk about the new uh, covenant and how that somehow reconciles us to God in ways that the law never could. Yeah, so the promise of the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant, and a lot of folks don't realize that, but I mean, obviously the, the promise given to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations, And that's what the new covenant is. Uh, Jesus Christ was lifted up on that cross. He begins to invite anyone and everyone to come to him. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we're saved, we enter into the benefits of this new covenant. And it's not our promise to God. It's actually God's promise to himself. Uh, Hebrews tells us this. It says God could, could not swear by anyone greater So he swore by himself, and we learn that the new covenant is basically God promising God. 
So on one hand, you've got the faithfulness of God, and on the other hand, you've got the faithfulness of God, and that's what locks us in. That's why we're saved and forgiven and righteous, because God has promised himself uh, to keep us secure. So the old covenant was their promises. Uh, God, we're really going to do it this time. We'll rededicate. We'll recommit. We'll obey everything, Lord. And it, it was a story of failure upon failure. And that's why the new covenant is so radically different. It's not about our promise keeping. It's about God's promise keeping to himself. I know that you, when you've presented the message of of grace, sometimes it's interpreted as being dangerous, that it is a cheap grace that you're referencing, that it gives people a license to sin. Can you uh, respond to those objections? And we'll go a bit deeper uh, in that area. But um, why do people fear the notion of grace as the scripture describes it? Yeah, when people call it dangerous grace, I like to say, well, yeah, it's dangerous to the enemy. If you get a hold of God's grace, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. The enemy doesn't want that. The enemy wants you uh, looking at rules, trying to engage in rule keeping, being scared of God, trying to impress God every day with your actions. That's not the gospel. So grace is dangerous, but it's only dangerous to the enemy. Somebody says it's cheap grace. Well, I don't get that because, as we said earlier, it costs Jesus his life and it's free to us. So there's no place for cheap grace. And then, you know, people will say it's hyper grace. I like to say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hyper about it myself. And the New Testament even uses the prefix hyper multiple times to talk about God's grace, that it's excessive, it's overabundance. Uh, the overabundance of grace is it's off the charts. It's amazing. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, people are, are saying grace is uh, a license to sin. Well, aren't we sinning just fine without a without license? license. <laughs> as, I, as I look at the Christian world, here we are afraid of God, trying to impress God, trying hard to work for God to get in, in his good graces. We're, we're in this achieving system, and yet we're failing and we're sinning just fine. So what if we gave God's grace a chance? I mean, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And do we believe him on that, that that forgiveness and grace and the kindness of the Lord, that's what leads us to repentance and motivates and inspires us. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a pastor and author of The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? Well, the answer clearly is yes, but do we get it? Well, the book is all about helping us understand what the scriptures teach, and that changes everything. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a best-selling author of nine books. His latest is The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? And the answer, of course, if you've read the scriptures, if you know Jesus, yes. But do we dramatically underestimate the value and the virtue of grace in the life of the believer? And I suppose the answer to that is also yes for many of us. Um, how is grace connected to the gospel message? And in coming to Christ and recognizing what he's done for us, how does that connection um, help us better understand the value and the virtue of grace? 
Yeah, well, grace is not a special focus. It's not a special emphasis. Uh, grace is the gospel itself. I mean, we're told in, in the book of Acts that the gospel is called the gospel of grace. That's Acts twenty twenty four. Uh, we're told elsewhere that uh, God has given us grace upon grace, that Jesus is full of grace. Uh, Romans says we're standing in grace. Uh, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. I mean, we could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of passages showing us that grace is the very core of the gospel. In fact, it's what differentiates Christianity from world religions. I mean, the common theme in world religions is you do your part, you work your hardest, God will grade on a curve. You try to get clean and get pure and get right through your obedience, and maybe, just maybe, uh, you will satisfy the deity. And that's what we see in world religions with a founder and a rule book, and you keep the rules, and you're in good standing. If you fail to keep the rules, you're punished. And that's religion, but that's not uh, what Christianity really is. Uh, Christianity is about relying on the work of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, he hung on that cross and said it's finished, and then, of course, we learn through the New Testament that salvation is free by grace we're saved. Well, I think this is one of the areas where there's confusion. We know that legalism is opposed to the the grace message, but what role does obedience play? We know that we're not earning our salvation. We're not earning favor um, before God, but we are called to be obedient. How does that fit into the grace message and the, the grace that we uh, enjoy in Christ? Yeah, so God's grace is equipping. And when we were saved, it was more than a ticket to heaven. It was more than an invitation to attend a building once a week on Sunday morning. Um, it was actually a heart surgery. You might even say a DNA swap at the core of our being. Uh, he took out our heart of stone and gave us a new heart. Romans 6 says that that new heart is an obedient heart, and that's the connection we need to make. Uh, look, I can be forgiven and yet miserable. Mm -hmm. I can be righteous and yet miserable. So why do I want to be miserable in choosing sin? Uh, I've got this new heart. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy me. Uh, and so I'm going to prove that God is right about me. Uh, I'm going to prove it by sinning and being miserable or by trusting Jesus and being fulfilled. But either way, I prove that my heart is an obedient heart. I'm addicted to Jesus. I'm allergic to sin. Hmm. I think when we come to recognize the, the depth of God's grace um, that, again, he lavishes on us, our heart's desire is to please him out of gratitude and love rather than that sense of obligation that so often drives us uh, to be legalistic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm either waking up uh, Monday morning and deciding I'm going to behave today in order to earn points and achieve status and get the certificates redeemable in heaven's gift shop, or I'm waking up Monday morning realizing you know what, Father, you've told me I'm your child, that I'm new-hearted, that I'm dead to sin, alive to God, that you've got the market cornered on, on satisfaction, and I believe you, that you're good. So today I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And if that's my motivation, well, that's healthy Christianity. 
What does it mean to die to sin? Um, we struggle throughout our lifetime because we still are in the flesh. What does it mean to die to, to sin? And what role does grace play in the, uh, the working out, the sanctification that is part of the life of every believer? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we actually look at this phrase, die to sin, uh, it's used in past tense for the believer. So this happened to us at salvation. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified mm-hmm. with Christ, and Romans 6 says, I, I, my old self died. Uh, Paul even says, you died to sin, how can you live in it any longer? So that's that heart surgery I was talking about a moment ago. I may not realize that I have a, a heart surgery that's occurred. I may still think that uh, I'm the same as the guy next door. I mean, that guy next door, he lays awake nights dreaming of new ways to sin. And then here you and I are talking about ways to not sin. So uh, we're spiritually, well, we're aliens in this world. We're, we're not a good fit with a fallen world. And so if I could just wrap my mind around the fact that it's not just that Jesus died for my sins. I died with Jesus. And when I died with Jesus, I died to sin's power. And that means sin doesn't have to have dominance over me anymore. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to who I really am. But there's a process there. I mean, you're right. I'm learning and I'm growing in that truth. I, I don't have perfect understanding. And so God says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But let me just let me just clarify one thing mm-hmm. that I think is really lacking in in the average person's understanding. This doesn't mean that my heart is wicked and deceitful and all those things that we like to say. No, you've got the new heart. What you need is is new attitudes, new perspectives, the renewing of the mind. So it's like software and hardware. Uh, when you bring a computer home, the hardware's new, but you still might need some software updates. Well, likewise, we've got the new spiritual hardware as believers, but we still need some software updates, the renewing of the mind. Yeah, I think some of us are carrying around the corpse of our sin nature, not realizing we have been crucified with Christ and and we live in him. How can we live in God's grace? What are some practical steps that you would suggest for those of us who want to live and embrace fully all that God has for us? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we could bring sin nature into it because you mentioned that. I mean, uh, so I had a great talk in 2009 uh, with Zondervan, the publishing house. They published my first book and I said, hey, look, uh, you guys have the NIV Bible, and you are perpetuating this uh, sinful nature verbiage, and it's not actually in the original language. Uh, would you look at that again? And sure enough, they did. After two decades of it being in there, they changed it back to flesh. And I think that's important. Uh, it's not just semantics, because, you know, what we need to tell believers is you've got a new nature. Uh, your new spiritual nature is that you're one spirit with the Lord, and yet you've got the stinking thinking, and that's what the flesh is. It's stinking thinking. It's it's old attitudes. It's remnants of that old self in your attitudes, but the old self is gone. So you need to be reprogrammed in your mind, let go of fleshly thinking, and you ask me about you know, what's the best way forward? Well, you fuel up. I mean, you fuel up on God's truth and you fuel up on God's grace and 
you you set your mind on the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel. And I, I think if we learn who we are in Christ, then we can be ourselves and express Jesus at the same time. I mean, we're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. Yeah, that's good. Now, what do you say to people who don't believe that God's grace is as good as the Bible says? My first suggestion would be read the book and then read the book. Uh, But how would you respond to to one who uh, isn't convinced that God's grace is as good as the scriptures say? Yeah, I think they need a heavier dose of law for about 15 minutes to come to their senses. Uh, You know, if we're going to say God's grace is not this big, then what's our answer? Go back to the law and you'll quickly find Jesus said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, be perfect like God, go sell everything in order to enter the kingdom. I mean, Jesus showed us the stringency of true self-improvement. He showed us how impossible it was so that we would realize our need for God's grace. So when somebody says, no, no, it's not all about grace, or no, no, God's grace is not that big, I would just invite them to go examine the law again and come back when they're done, because when you see the law in all of its impossible glory— then the grace of God shines even more brightly. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Jesus said he fulfilled the law. We were so blessed to be free from the burden of of all that was yes. in it. Well, Dr. Farley, I thank you for the book, and I thank you for taking time to to join us here today. Once again, the book is The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? The answer, yes. <laughs> uh, published by Salem Books. Thank you so much, Dr. Farley. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Before I launch into an article from Victor Davis Hansen, one of my favorite uh, writers, uh, I wanted to remind you that coming up on the 29th at Northwest Christian Church, Mark Schultz is in concert. It's a benefit for, and by the way, he's a platinum selling award winning artist. It's a a benefit concert for Stand Up Girl. Uh, so check that out. You can go to their website for more information about that. But um, reasonably priced. Again, that's coming up on the 29th Northwest Christian Church in Newburgh. All right. Well, Victor Davis Hansen wrote an article, um, How America Became La La Land. And he suggests that it's something of a uh, we're in something of a dystopian reality and imagine state or society where there's great suffering or injustice. And he uh, he writes about a litany of challenges that we're currently facing that, quite frankly, are rather partisan. But I think it goes beyond that. And I wanted to share some of that with you as we are, or at least many of us are praying people. It reminds us that the state is insufficient to supply uh, justice as it ought or uh, it's unworthy of our full uh, devotion and attention because it will always fall short. But he writes that America these last 14 months resembles a dystopia. It's becoming partly the world of George Orwell's 1984 and partly the poet Homer's land of the lotus eaters. And I have to admit that's that's seems to uh, resonate. Nothing seems to be working and no one in control seems to care. 
The once secure border of 2020 vanished. Two million people have crossed the southern border illegally in the past 12 months. Millions more are on the way. The administration unilaterally and simply destroyed existing immigration law. And what followed was surreal. The administration claimed COVID-19 was again on the horizon, so it justified forcing American citizens to keep wearing masks in public buildings and transportation. But at the same time, it waived all such requirements for illegal entrance. And by the way, that was an issue that came up with the AG earlier today in that uh, Senate hearing. Citizens who obeyed our laws had to mask up. Foreign nationals who broke them um, didn't need to take such precautions. The president blasted as near criminals mounted border guards with um, who under lo- uh, long reins uh, to steady their horses. When the investigations cleared them of wrongdoing, he went mute. The administration apparently sees its own American law enforcement at the border as criminals and non-Americans who break our laws as their moral superiors. The president then concocted the perfect recipe for bringing back the inflation of the 1970s. Simply print more money, run up multi-trillion dollar annual deficits, which didn't start with him, borrow trillions on top of a 30 trillion dollar national debt, debt rather, send generous checks to workers for staying home, shrug at historic disruptions of the supply chain. And by the way, many of those millions are still at home. When reminded that his deliberate policies are the classic road to inflation, the president went fetal and ignored the warnings or he lashed out and blamed anyone or anything for his own suicidal agendas. First, we heard inflation was transitory. Then it was a mere concern of the elite. Then it was only a matter of exercise uh, equipment being in short supply. Then it was solely because of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Then somehow it was also the result of former President Donald Trump. Then it was an organic phenomenon that the president that presidents had little power to stop. America was energy independent until the arrival of the administration on the orders of the Green New Deal masters. The president immediately began canceling federal oil and gas leases. He stopped new pipelines. He jawboned against the private financing of fossil fuel production. He was bent on his way to fulfilling his campaign promises of eliminating the use of natural gas and oil on his watch. Then prices soared and the public grew irate. In response, still more incoherence followed. The administration wouldn't reverse its destructive energy policies, but as it floundered in desperation, the president begged American enemies, Iran, Russia and Venezuela, to pump more oil on our behalf. In vain, it beseeched, or rather, uh, the administration beseeched Saudi Arabia to produce more of the uh, hated, icky stuff that we had in abundance but would not fully produce ourselves. The president uh, tapped the strategic petroleum reserve, yet the existential peril was not war or natural uh, catastrophe, but Biden himself and his far more dangerous policies. Abroad, we looked at the relatively manageable situation in Afghanistan and simply fled. The terrorist Taliban quickly took over and restored its medieval rule. The administration abandoned a $1 trillion embassy and dumped a $300 million refitted air base in Bagram. Over $70 billion in military supplies and weapons were left for the Taliban terrorists. Thousands of refugees were airlifted. They may not have um, been properly vetted and were transported into the United States. Meanwhile, hundreds of known translators and helpers of the U.S. military were left behind. As public outrage grew in typical fashion, he blamed the Afghanistan debacle on his generals. Then he blamed Trump. Then he denied that he had ever claimed the war was going well. 
In the end, the public was told the humiliating flight was a near-perfect logistical evacuation, as if America should be proud of being better at running away than it was of fighting, which wasn't really required as long as we remained. What explains an America that suddenly no longer works? First, all of these problems are self-induced. They didn't exist until... They were birthed for ideological or political reasons. Apparently, the administration wanted a changing, more favorable electorate and demography at any cost. Perhaps Biden was privately happy that cash short commuters had to burn less gasoline. Maybe the more he printed money, the more he would be rewarded politically. Second, the president has no solutions to these self-created problems because of the ideological restraints the left has imposed on him. The administration fears the anger of the hard left more than the furor of the American people. So it will not change, preferring to be politically correct and a failure than to be ideologically correct and successful. Third, when people object, this administration answers either by blaming others for its self-created mess or by seeking distractions. Now it is uh, faulting gun owners for the crime wave it fostered, supposed white supremacists for the racial tensions it fanned, and Putin, whom it appeased. The common denominator, Biden knows that he inherited a stable, prosperous America and has nearly ruined it. And he knows the American people know it, too. The midterm elections, perhaps, will be the most telling uh, if the American people hold him directly accountable for the kerfuffle we find ourselves in. Is it a dystopian uh, state that we find ourselves in? Well, the voting booth will um, provide the answer come November. We may all be surprised. There may not be the upheaval that everyone is predicting, including uh, Democrats who are concerned about the midterm elections and Republicans rolling over um, incumbents and races that uh, have yet to be decided. Uh, perhaps that uh, prediction is wrong, but only the election itself will make that determination. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I do want to uh, thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Wanted to let you know that on Thursday, Wes Walterman will be joining us. The Singing Christmas Tree is presenting a hymn sing next month, and we'll fill you in on all the important details. I hope you'll join us for that. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.